So glad that you could be with us this morning. Welcome to TBA. Glad that you're a part of our worship. As Brandon just said, we are continuing in our Who's Your One series. This is part two. As Stivey mentioned to you last week, this is not the same messages that we're repeating over and over. This is a new series that we're walking through, looking at some different aspects. And so I hope that you will stay involved with us and be a part of that. Hopefully, at some point along the way, you have put a token into our display up here. And the whole point of this is you're writing a name on that token that is someone who you are praying for, somebody that you're pursuing for Christ, somebody that doesn't know Christ currently, and you're putting them in, in there to show that you're praying for them. And it gives us an opportunity as a church family to be able to wrap around that and pray with you and pray together for those people that are represented by the tokens. But it shouldn't just stop there. See, putting a name on a token, honestly, that's, that's pretty easy. You think about somebody that you know that you want to see come to Christ, it's easy to write their name down, easy to drop that in. Even praying for them on a regular basis, that takes a little more effort, but in the grand scheme, it's pretty passive in what we're doing. The question I would ask is this, what are you doing to pursue the person that you put in that display? How are you living your life in front of them? What conversations are you having? How are you building relationship that will give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Maybe the better question would be, are you in the game or are you sitting on the sidelines? You see, I think a lot of us tend to approach evangelism a lot like we approach sports. And sports, I think, has kind of conditioned us in a lot of ways to how we do things and see things in life. We're rolling into this March Madness time frame. If you, even if you don't like sports, I guarantee you're seeing the commercials or you're hearing people talk at work. They're putting together their brackets and they're figuring out, you know, which team's going to be in the tournament, who's going to be able to win it all. You know, they're, they're placing their bets. They're doing all their stuff. And everything is wrapped around this basketball theme right now. And even as you think about that, think about the impact that that has on the way we look at life. In most every sport, there's one common similarity that you see. It doesn't matter if it's football, basketball, soccer, whatever it is. There's a limited number of athletes that play the game on the field or on the court, depending on what the game is. And then there are hundreds or even thousands of fans or spectators who are sitting outside of that court or outside of that field of play who are there just to cheer them on. Limited number of athletes, huge number of fans or spectators. In this upcoming basketball tournament, at any given time, there will be no more than 10 players on the court, no more than 10 athletes. If they have more than that, there's going to be some kind of penalty, right? So you've got five on each team. They're playing against each other, 10 athletes on the court. There's going to be a few more athletes that are sitting on the bench that they're waiting for the coach to put them in so they can be part of the game. You'll have maybe a commentator or you'll have the announcer there at the, the, the uh, arena. You'll have the refs that are on the court. You'll have a few other odd and end people who play smaller roles. But then who makes up the biggest part of the population that's there at those tournaments? There will literally be thousands and thousands of fans packed into that arena who are sitting back in their chair, cheering for their team, yelling at just the right moment to distract the other players, thinking that they have this huge impact in the game while they eat their pretzels and their nachos and they guzzle their Coke and they're an armchair quarterback for the whole thing, right? And I think a lot of times that's the mentality that we hold on to when we look at church and when we look at evangelism. See, the, the reality is the fans have a very small and a very passive impact on the game. Now, they'd like to think they control the game, especially if you see Kentucky fans at the game. They think they control the game. Right, Wade? 
They get in the game, they're yelling, they're cheering, they think they can change the momentum, and sometimes maybe they can. They think if they yell just the right thing at the strategic moment when that guy's trying to shoot a free throw that they can throw him off and he'll miss. Likely he was going to miss anyway because most of them aren't that, very, aren't that good at free throws. But they think that they have all of this impact in the game, but in reality their role is small. Ultimately, the game is won or lost by how well that team plays together, how well those players show up, interact together, and play together as a team for the common purpose of winning the game. And I'm sure we could argue some of the finer points of how much influence the fans really have, and I'm not saying they don't, but think about it this way. What would happen if the team didn't show up to play? How much impact would the fans have at that point? You can yell all you want, you can say all the right things, you can cheer your heart out, but your team's still gonna lose if the players don't show up to play in the game. End of story. And so it leaves me wondering, how many of us are fans in the game of evangelism? We cheer for our pastor, or we cheer for our focus group leader, or maybe our D group leader, or even our friends that we see in the game. But we're still sitting on the sidelines or in the stands, not playing the role that God's called us to play. Have you dropped your token into the display, said a quick prayer, shared the name, maybe even with the group you're in, and then forgot about it? Or are you being intentional about walking with the person and seeking opportunities to share Christ? What's that look like for you? In Organic Outreach, Kevin Harney says it this way, evangelism is not a spectator sport. We are all called to get into the game. God invites every follower of Jesus to get off the sidelines and onto the field. But wait a minute, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's not really my job. That's why I pray for my pastor and pray for my friends that are good at telling people about Jesus. Well, I don't know which pastor you're referring to, but guess what? I don't have the gift of evangelism either. In fact, most of you probably won't believe this, but I am actually an introvert. You wouldn't see that because you see me up front all the time talking to you and doing other things. And in all fairness, I'm probably a little more of a hybrid, but I definitely lean towards being an introvert. I've learned to play the role of pastor. I've learned to get up here and to talk and to do these things. I've learned how to interact with people as they come in and to be as comfortable as I can possibly be with that. But if I'm being completely honest, when I leave church on a Sunday morning after Sunday worship, I'm exhausted because I've been on all morning and I've been focused and intentional and trying to do all the right things to interact with people. And when I go home, I don't even want to see or talk to my family. Ask them. I'll go hide in my bedroom or hide in the bathroom or go somewhere just for 20, 30 minutes just to get away from everybody because I need some time to recharge on my own. If you watch me in another location where I'm not as comfortable as I am here at TBA, I'm not the guy that walks in the room and announces my presence. I'm not the one that flings open the doors and makes sure everybody knows I'm there. In fact, I'm more of a wallflower. I'll be over on the side, kind of in the background, trying to stay out of things. I'll be very strategic in looking around the room and figuring out who am I going to talk to, what are we going to talk about, how do I want that conversation to go, or I might be standing there trying to figure out how am I going to avoid having to talk to anybody today. I'm just being honest. That, that's how I'm wired. So I've learned to do things in certain settings, but it's not normal for me. But that doesn't mean that I'm not called to share the gospel. I just do it differently than how most people with the gift of evangelism might do it. I'm not generally going to be confrontational or introduce myself by asking the question, do you know Jesus? But that doesn't mean I'm not looking for an opportunity. 
Some of you probably remember my good friend, Mikey Littlejohn. Went to our church for a long time. Most of you called him coach. You know him as that. Mikey was very involved in helping to start Make It Happen Riders, the Live Scent uh, motorcycle ministry here at the church. He was also very involved in a local prison ministry, doing a lot of things within the prison. And, and had a lot of impact. He was a lay pastor here at TBA. He and his wife recently moved to South Carolina a few months back just to be closer to their grandchildren and kind of start that retired life. Um, but let me tell you, Mikey is one of those guys who has the gift of evangelism. Big guy, big heart, even bigger voice, and he's one of those guys that does not know a stranger at all. And when he walks in the room, you know Mikey's in the room. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But Mikey's one of those guys, he can walk into a gas station and he'll walk out with three new friends that he's telling about Jesus. And you go, how do you do that? I'm avoiding talking to the person behind the counter, much less anybody else in the store when I walk in. And Mikey comes out with new friends. He just has this way of disarming you and making you feel comfortable and making you feel cared for. He's genuine, but yet he's extremely bold. And see, I admire that about Mikey, but I don't resemble that at all. It's not how I'm wired. He truly has a gift, and I don't have that same gift, but yet I have the same calling. And so do you. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Maybe. <laughs> I think the computer just said no. Well, while they fixed that, Jesus did say these words. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. We are called to be salt and light. But I want to break that down even further, because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching that day. And he's just shared what we know as the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are those who, and fill in the blanks. He goes on to fill in several blanks that paint this picture of what his followers are supposed to be. And then he wraps up that section by talking about how you will be blessed when people persecute you for being his follower. Well, that's not really the phrase that any of us want to read or listen to or think about, right? But what I take out of that is he is very specifically speaking in this sermon to his followers. He's talking about followers of him, of his way. And then he starts this next key point that I just read to you with two very specific words that we can't skip over as we read this. He says, you are. You are. Two very intentional words. He is not inviting his followers to something. He's not making a suggestion. It's a bold and affirmational statement saying you are. In fact, in the English language, the word are represents a state of being. Think about it that way. It could have been translated like this. As my follower, you are in a state of being salt to all the earth. You are in a state of being light to the world around you. I think you get what I'm saying as I read through that, but even deeper, I find it interesting the word he chooses there for you because what we find when you go throughout the New Testament is most of the places we read the word you, it's actually in a plural form. And you don't see that because the Bible doesn't list it that way. But especially like Paul's letters, it's almost always the plural form of the word you. And he's speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to the church or speaking to a community. And in Florida, we would say y'all. 
That's what he's saying there is you all. He's talking to this whole group. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus uses the singular version of the word, and he's speaking to each of us individually, each of his followers, you. Every single follower of Christ is salt and light. It's not optional. You're either living as salt and light, or you have to ask yourself the question, am I really following Jesus? He doesn't make it either or. He doesn't make it an invitation. It's plain. It's simple. See, we read across this quickly, but it's not an easy statement. There's no wiggle room here. He doesn't invite us. He says we are salt and light if we're following him. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you think about that and you go, man, that's a little overwhelming. But don't lose hope just yet. Because you have to remember that being salt and light is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. We are in a state of being salt and light because we've been transformed by Christ and because we have the power of his Holy Spirit living within us. So I want to talk for a little bit about what that means. What does it look like to be salt and light in the world around us? And how do we do that? How does that play into our lives practically? And first, I think it's important that we have good context of how practical these examples were that Jesus was using in that time. See, when Jesus spoke those words, they understood the concept of salt differently than what you and I do. I don't know about you guys, but when you say salt to me, the first thing I think about is sprinkling a little bit of salt on my food to give it flavor, right? And that's not a bad context, but it was so much more in this day as Jesus was talking. At that time, salt was known as the second most valuable commodity in all the world. The sun was the first most valuable commodity, and salt was the second. It was literally critical to survival in a lot of ways. In fact, salt was so valuable in the Roman Empire at that time that they would often literally pay their soldiers or other contractors or people in salt. That was how they got paid their wages was they would receive salt. Or if they didn't receive salt itself, they would get a form of money called salarium that they would use to go and purchase salt. That's where we get our term salary from. And it was a specific monetary payment form that was for the purpose of buying salt. If you've ever wondered where the phrase worth is salt came from, it's there from the Roman Empire. Worth is salt. You do a full day of wages, you got paid in salt. And Jesus was making this very practical. What you bring to the world is the most important thing. It's more important than anything else. You are salt. So what does that mean? Let's look at some of the qualities of salt. Because salt has a lot of different qualities and different uses. And the first thing is salt preserves. Think about it. We use salt even now as a preservative, but in this time, this was before refrigeration, this was before any of our other modern day preservation processes, salt was the primary preservative, especially for meats. They would use salt to keep their meats good. And in a very similar way, we as Christians, as followers of Christ, are called to be a preserving factor in the world. We literally are preserving people's souls as we invite them to eternity with Christ. But even more than that, we're agents of preservation of the way of Jesus. And we talked about that a couple series ago, talking about the way of Jesus and how he works and how he moves. Sometimes it's something as simple as living with integrity or holding on to purity and how that preserves the holiness of God in a world that's full of contaminants. Another factor that we want to think about is salt purifies. And we don't think about this very often, but many of you probably use salt in a format that purifies. If you have a pool that has a salt water system where it transfers it to chlorine to keep your water clean and keep your water good to be able to swim in, or a lot of you have like water softening devices at your house to where it's using salt as a primary component to purify that water and to soften it and do some other things. 
Salt purifies. It purifies that water coming into your home to be able to drink. It helps to remove the impurities from the water that can be harmful to us. And in the same way, we should be representatives of purity in a very impure world that we live in today. We should be reflecting Christ to those around us by the simple way that we live. Salt creates thirst. I think you get this one, that's pretty obvious. Why is it when you go into a restaurant that they put chips and salsa on the table? Or if maybe if you're sitting at a bar, they'll put peanuts or popcorn or something like that in front of you. Why do they do that? Because it's gonna make you thirsty. Not the food itself, but the salt that's on it makes you thirsty and they're gonna sell more drinks that way. They're gonna make more money. They're trying to make sure that you have salt in your system so that you buy a little bit more. And in the same way, we should be creating a thirst in everybody around us for Jesus, for his living water. The way you live your life should make others want what you have. Another one, and this is a little less common for people who are Florida natives, but salt melts. Did you know that? How many of you are Florida natives? Okay, few, good. So hopefully at this point you've gotten outside of the state and you've experienced snow and you've experienced maybe a little bit of ice or those things, colder weather. I grew up in West Virginia. Salt was crucial to what, I mean, it was like every year in the wintertime when it snows and you get ice on the roads, they go out with their plows and they're scraping the road and trying to get as much as they can off and then they're throwing salt right behind it. It tears up your cars and has some other destructive things, but it melts that ice, it melts that snow and it keeps the roads and the walkways clear so that you're not slipping on the ice and falling. It's a very important thing. So salt melts. In a similar way, our lives should help to melt cold and hardened hearts, opening them to the love of Jesus and the power of the gospel. And lastly, salt heals. Now this is one you probably don't think about a whole lot, but we use salt a whole lot for this. Think about saline solution that is used commonly either to put into your body or to rinse out a wound or to do something at a hospital. There's healing qualities within salt. If you have some kind of cut or abrasion or something going on and you go to the ocean and you get in the ocean, if it's really fresh, it might burn a little bit when you first get in, right, because of the salt content. But what happens? It heals a whole lot faster. It dries up. It clears up. And it has that healing quality about it. Salt heals. And in the same way, we should be instruments of healing in the world. And that could be a lot of different things. It could be healing to hearts that have been wounded by false representations of God or of religion. It could be by, for those who have been hurt in the church or maybe just those who are, are walking in the midst of something painful in life. We should be instruments of hope and comfort and peace for those people who are hurting and are sick. And I hope just that picture kind of gives you a little more context about exactly what Jesus was saying when he was talking to people and he made this statement, you are the salt of the earth. There's all these qualities that are wrapped up into that that were just understood by his audience, by the people he was talking to. It was a big deal. But then he goes on to say this, if we've lost our saltiness, we're worthless. Well, how do you lose your saltiness? You use, lose your saltiness by becoming disconnected from Christ. And it's actually similar to his next reference about being the light of the world. We're not the source of light that he's talking about, but rather we're a reflection of his light. Think about it in context of the sun and the moon. The sun puts out a ton of light, right? And at night, especially if we have a full moon, the moon puts out a lot of light. Or does it? See, the moon doesn't put out anything. The moon is dark. All it does is reflect the sun, but for us, we see the light because of the reflection of the sun on the moon reflecting down to earth. 
In the same way, we're not called to be the light. We're more like the moon. We're reflecting the light of Christ. So instead of the sun reflecting off of the moon, it is the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, his light reflecting off of our lives to the world around us. We are a reflection of that. And that's another really practical example of the day. Because even today, when you're standing near the Sea of Galilee at night, you look around you, you, you see these words of Jesus that says, you're like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. I've stood there on the side of the Sea of Galilee, and you look around, and you can see all these cities for miles around. Some of them right there on the sea that you can see practically. Some of them literally miles and miles away, but they're on a mountaintop, and you can just see all the light shining. It's like a beacon that's there, almost like looking at a lighthouse, except it's not flashing at you. It's just lit up. So they got that. They understood that. Then you go on to talk about not covering up your light or not covering up your lamp, but putting it on a stand so everybody can see. And when you think about that, here's another practical example. Think about this. When you or I want to light a light, well, we flip the switch because we have electricity. Really easy. But even when the electricity goes out, if you have to light a candle or you have a lamp in your house and you're going to light that, what do you do? You pull out a lighter or a book of matches and you light it, right? They didn't have a lighter or a book of matches back then. So what happened when you needed to light a candle each evening or light a lamp to be able to, to have light in the house? Well, maybe you were lucky enough that your cooking fire was still burning and you could use those coals. That happened. But a lot of times they would have to use some kind of flint or something to get that spark and get that started so they could light a candle or light a lamp. It took a little bit of work and effort and thought just to create light in the evening when it was dark. So once they did that and they had that lamp burning or that candle burning, you didn't want to put that out if you had to go out somewhere. If it was after dark and you had to go out into town for something and we're going to come back, you didn't want to put that out. But you don't want to just leave your candle burning in your house. That's not real safe either. So they would literally put a bowl or a basket over that lamp or over that candle and it would have a hole in the bottom of it. So it's not very good as a bowl to hold water, but it's perfect for this. They set it over that candle or over that lamp and that little hole would allow oxygen that would let that flame keep burning so the lamp or the candle would stay lit but it effectively dimmed the candle to where they basically turned out the lights in their house. And they're also protecting from fire hazard in the house as well as they do that. And then when they come back, take the bowl off, put it up on the stand so that everybody can see because you want to be able to see in the house and you're wanting to put that light out as, as best you can. And that's how Jesus is saying that we live as the light of the world. He's saying, don't put a bowl over your lamp. Shine brightly for all the world to see. We reflect his light as brightly as possible to everyone living in darkness so that they are drawn to his light. And that light drives away fear and gives security. I mean, think about it. Even in your own house, you know your way around, but if it is pitch black in your house, when the lights are all out at night and there's no night lights, there's no anything, it's actually pitch black. Getting around isn't very easy, is it? You walk carefully and you put your hands out and you walk gently because you've stubbed your toe in your bed before, you've kicked the wall, or you've done those things and you don't want to do that again. You're walking very carefully, but just the tiniest little bit of light, the moonlight shining in through a crack in the window or, you know, the light on your flashlight or, or a nightlight or something, it doesn't take much. It lets you walk with confidence. A few years back, I, I didn't realize how afraid my wife was of the dark, and I didn't tell her I was going to share this. I'm probably going to be in trouble, but... I convinced her to go hog hunting with me one night several years ago. And we took off running through this field in the dark, going after a bait hog. And uh, I realized very quickly how scared of the dark my wife was because I heard her very loudly and directly have a conversation with Jesus the entire way from where we were to where the hog was. Now, walking through that same field in the daytime 
or even with just a bright flashlight or a lantern, I bet she would have been looking around talking about how pretty the scenery was. But in the dark, with no flashlight and on a dead run, there was nothing talked about about the scenery. It was, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. <laughs> Light casts out fear and gives security and peace of mind, doesn't it, babe? You're in I'm in trouble. <laughs> you, every single one of you that claims to follow Christ, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So how do you live that out? How do you plug into evangelism? How do you get off the sidelines and get into the game, especially when you don't have that specific gift of evangelism? I think there's two real simple principles that I want to give you this morning that will help us to live as salt and light in the world around us. And the first is very simple. We need to be ourselves. Be true to the way God has created you and wired you and gifted you. Be true to the talents and the abilities he's given you. Be yourself. If you're wired like my buddy Glenn Farrell down here, and you can disarm a tense situation with a goofy smile and some well-chosen words, use that to your advantage. Now, I'm not sure that he won anybody to Christ in this process, but just a few weeks ago, Glenn and I and Pastor Ariel, our Spanish pastor, traveled to Honduras together. And it was a cool trip. We'll have to tell you some of the details later. But the most memorable thing for me about the trip, thinking about Glenn, was when we were coming back from Honduras, we're in the airport in San Pedro, and Ariel and I have already checked in while he was returning the rental car and taking care of some other details. And we're both in middle seats of the plane. And of course, there's going to be very large people sitting on either side of us. And neither of us are small guys as it is. So we're crammed in. And if you don't know, I'm claustrophobic. I don't like that at all. I hate that concept. And here comes Glenn bebopping up after he checks in. And he goes up and tells this stupid ludicrous story to the person behind the counter who can barely speak English and his Spanish isn't that great, but somehow he communicates with them that he is this strong buff guy who can rip the exit door from the plane and throw it out and make sure that everybody gets out of the plane safely. And so what do they do? They move him to the exit row with nobody sitting beside him. <laughs> he's the scrawniest guy in the group and he's in the exit row with all this room laid back and relaxing and me and Ariel are crunched like this between two fat people trying to get home on the plane. <laughs> now, in a similar way, I've seen Farrell shift a conversation towards Christ in a similar way. He has that ability with his words. God has gifted him to be able to put others at ease and to talk about anything. I think it's why he was a good and a hostage negotiator with the sheriff's office. Be true to who you are. Be true to who you are. It's something we got to hold on to. And all of us are wired a little bit differently. There's different styles and ways to share the love of Christ with others. Some people are confrontational. And by that, I don't mean go pick a fight. That, that's not good evangelism. I'll just tell you up front. But they're good at just being able to say things that maybe somebody else couldn't say. Mikey was one of those guys, he could walk up to you and it, the first words out of his mouth could be, do you know Jesus? And somehow he put people at ease when he said that. Usually when I say something like that, people appear to panic, but it's just different. He had that gift. He had that wiring. He had that ability. Be true to who you are. Some people are more invitational, meaning maybe you invite somebody to an event or you just invite them into your life, but you live your life in such a way that you're inviting people in and you draw them closer to you because that's how you're wired. Some people are wired intellectually. They can sit and have a conversation all day long about the, the case for Christ or, or why our gospel is important. I think of a guy like Lee Strobel who wrote the book, you know, Case for Christ. 
They think differently and they can use facts and they can use science and they can use all these things to help you engage in the conversation and figure things out and feel comfortable and be part of it. That's just another way of doing it. Some people are testimonial. They use their own story. They talk about the things that they've walked through. They talk about their story, their faith story, how God has shown up in their life, what's happened in their life. And they can use that to disarm a situation or disarm a person to where they listen and hear about God. Some of you are wired to serve. If that's you, serve well. Love people with all your heart. Put that into practice. You'll be amazed at the opportunities that you get just by serving others and showing them love in practical ways. And all that brings me to the second principle that I think we need to hold on to. So not only do we need to be true to ourselves in the way God's wired us, but we also need to be obedient when God presents an opportunity. And even when it's outside of your comfort zone, you need to be obedient. If you were here last week, you heard Stivey tell the story about how God laid it on his heart to pray for the lady in the barber shop. I can assure you, knowing Stivey the way I do, that was not comfortable for him. That was not easy. That was not within his normal comfort zone or his natural wiring to be able to do that. But God gave an opportunity, and he was obedient. I think most of the time what I see is God gives us opportunities within our wiring. He gives us the ability to work within those things and interact with people that we're comfortable with and to build those relationships, and those things happen naturally. But there are times where he asks us to step outside of that. And in both situations, we have to be paying attention to the opportunities and we have to be obedient in those situations. Remember, we're salt and light because he lives through us. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And don't start throwing out the excuses about how you don't know enough scripture or you need more training or you're not very good at talking to people or whatever it is that comes to mind. Because all of those things might be true. And I would encourage you that if those things are true, you need to be doing something about it. If it's because you don't know enough scripture, study scripture. Pick up your Bible, get in it, read, do those things. If you feel like you need training about how to talk to people, attend a class, go to an apologetics class or go to an evangelism class or go to something that kind of helps you to work through those things and figure that out. But in the midst of all of that, allow God to work through you where you are. It doesn't matter how much scripture you know. It doesn't matter all of those things. If God is asking you to do something, be obedient. Because where you are in life, he will use in that moment to be instrumental for somebody else. Trust God and be obedient. You are salt and light. And he will use you accordingly. I recently heard Danielle Beach, who's the leader of our homework club team, um, share some of the following in her, about her own role as a leader in that ministry. And this is a place where she is definitely salt and light in the ministry. And I, I just want to, if you don't know Danielle, I want to point out who she is because she sent me this picture yesterday. I'm sorry, Danielle. I, I just can't resist. She, she sent me this picture yesterday and I went, is she even in the picture? And I'm looking all through it and then I finally picked her out right here amongst the kids. <laughs> Danielle's like four foot nothing if you don't know already. So she blends right in, and I think it's one of the reasons she is such good salt and light with our kids. She fits right in with them. But she is an amazing leader. And here's, I want you to listen to these words she said, because I think this fits for where we're going today. It says, the truth is, on my own, I didn't have what it takes to run this ministry. And I still don't. But I've learned that God doesn't need my abilities. He just needs my availability. God isn't looking for your remarkable talent or your unlimited wealth or vast knowledge of scripture. He's looking for you to offer whatever you have, no matter how small. Romans 12, six through nine says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. 
If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Good words, Daniel. This past week, also, I was talking to uh, Andrew Vaca, who's one of our leaders in our TBA Kids Ministry. And if you haven't met Andrew yet, you can see him here. He's in the sporty little wheelchair. And uh, Andrew has quite a sense of humor. This was a couple weeks ago at men's ministry. I'm pulling out of the driveway to go somewhere, and Andrew wheels out right in front of me and just sits there in the driveway to see how close are you going to get. <laughs> you can see how much we love each other and how close I got. He was actually kind of bringing me in as I was pulling up to him. But this is Andrew. He's got a great personality, great wiring, interacts well with others. And he was sharing with us the other night about this cool opportunity that we could be praying for with him. Said that he has been praying, and this is what caught me. He's been praying for a while that God would put him in a position where he was the only Christian. And I thought, hmm, I don't know that I've ever prayed that. He's been praying for a while that God would put him in a position where he was the only Christian and had opportunity to be salt and light in a dark world. And he recently came across an opportunity to play in a wheelchair basketball league over in Orlando. And this fits Andrew perfectly because if you know Andrew very well, several of us have nicknamed him Wheels and he regularly tries to run over me just for fun. Y'all see me beat on some of our youth boys and kind of interact with people and be a little rough. Andrew's the same way. He's constantly trying to run over my boots or do something or just run into my leg and take me out. You know, that's this how he's wired. He, this is a rough sport. You'll have to talk to him about it someday. It's pretty fun. But he stated emphatically the other night that he is absolutely the only Christian on this team. How cool. But yet in just a few weeks of games, he's already had several guys from that team reach out to him outside of basketball to talk about struggles that they were having in life because they see a difference in the way he lives. That's powerful. He's being salt and light in a dark place. He's being true to himself in the way that God has wired him and even using the uniqueness of his circumstances where you and I would look at it and call it a disability, he's using that to be salt and light in the world around him, in his world. And that's what it's all about. He's looking for and praying for opportunities, the same as we need to be doing. Band, you guys come on up. I want to leave you this morning with just a brief excerpt from a book that's called Lifestyle Evangelism, and this is written by Joe Aldrich. It's several years old. I want to say it was written in like the 70s or early 80s. And this is a fictional representation, but it illustrates a very critical truth. So listen to these words. Here's an encounter between the angel Gabriel and Jesus. It says, even in heaven, Jesus bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with his cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly while down there. I did, he said. And, continued Gabriel, do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done, he asked, to let everyone know about your love for them? And Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell other people still about me. And my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the earth. Ultimately, all people will have heard about my life and what I've done. Gabriel kind of frowned and looked rather skeptical. Yes, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? 
What if way down in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. See, as followers of Jesus, we are the only plan to share the hope of the gospel with the world around us. There is no other plan, just you and me. You, me, every single one of us are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We just have to go and live like it. Stand with me. We're going to pray. 